Hello, I'm Scott Guthrie, and welcome to episode 17 of the Influencer Marketing Lab. This week, I'm in conversation with friend of the Influencer Marketing Lab podcast, Mark Dandy, founder and managing director of Captivate Influence. In this episode, we discuss influencers in Dubai, the UK government making headlines paying influencers, supply and demand factors pushing up the influencers' costs, and the widening gulf between an influencer as a credible, trustworthy voice versus a celebrity born on reality TV, and the need for the influencer marketing discipline to create a lexicon that's fit for purpose to differentiate between elements that sit beneath the umbrella term influencer. The Influencer Marketing Lab has been made possible through exclusive sponsorship by Tagger. Tagger is the number one data-driven influencer marketing platform and social listening tool. It's an all-in-one SaaS platform that helps users succeed in every step of the influencer marketing workflow. With it, you can discover the perfect influencers, research your target market, activate campaigns, and measure influencer success all in one intuitive platform. If you want to see how Tagger can work with you, go to taggermedia.com slash request hyphen demo. This week, I'm back talking with friend of the Influencer Marketing Lab podcast, Mark Dandy. As a reminder for listeners, Mark worked at integrated social media company Social Chain, where he headed up the influencer marketing strategy. Mark then went on to found and is the managing director of Captivate Influence, a specialist social media and influencer marketing agency. Mark, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Well, we haven't had the conversation yet. Who knows where this will go? But thank you very much for coming back. You were kind enough to join me on season one, episode four. So thank you very much for coming back and helping me to kick off season three. Last time we spoke, we talked about the pulling power of Love Island contestants in shifting product. And we spoke specifically about Molly May Haig as a great use case in the evolution of the influencer. So I want to start off as a, with a bit of a curveball and talk about influencers in Dubai. Yeah. To give a little bit of background to the story to those listening who are unaware of recent mainstream media headlines, there have been a handful of, I would say, ex-TV reality celebrities from Love Island and from Jersey Shore who have taken advantage of the UK government allowing essential work trips as justification for travel to Dubai. No doubt working hard, but also with drinks in the hand, by the pool, in the sun. So I've got mixed feelings about this. Do you want to kick off on your thoughts on this, or do you want me to plough on with, with my thoughts? Well, first of all, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard life, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, working hard or hardly working. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, it, for me, it, it is an interesting, an interesting one. A lot of it revolves around this idea of flying out there for work. Like, I know several of, of them have been out there since, you know, October, November, December, um, when there was no travel bans and there, there was no issue with being in Dubai. It was a case of um, having a COVID test before you went. And if you passed and you were negative, you got to go. Um, you then had one when you arrived. And again, if it was negative, then you were allowed out after a couple of days and you could get on with your life. And I think a lot of them took advantage of that in terms of just being wanting to be in a, in a warmer climate and, and have some fun and a lot of them have just decided to stay out there. So I don't think that there's been a massive influx of influencers in the last month that have kind of flown out to Dubai since the latest lockdown. A lot of them have just stayed there 
from beforehand. And with that, you know, I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, they didn't break any rules and, and, and they were there on holiday and then just decided to stay. Well, I'll go on to why I have some sympathy in, in a second. But, you know, you talk about they haven't broken any rules or, or, or laws. I think, you know, that there, are, that there are rules and the regulations and laws as directed by jurisdictions. But there's also a governance. There's also a self-governance and there's also you know, an, an ethics point of view. So whilst they haven't contributed any, any laws, I think it's a bit tone deaf and shows a, a lack of maybe a skill or an understanding of the sentiment of their audience, especially when you know the rest of their audience is largely UK, largely sitting in lockdown. Now, I do have sympathy, as, as I just said, and you know I, I picked up on a story, and I don't know if tons and tons of people picked up on the story, but Madonna visited five countries in three weeks over Christmas and New Year. <laughs> she travelled with her boyfriend and her kids and a personal photographer from LA to London, London to Egypt, Egypt to Malawi, Malawi to Kenya, and then back. That erupted on social media and and mainstream media around the 12th of January, and then it was quickly dissipated. The Dubai story and influences, that's been festering for a month. So I do have some sympathy, as I say, you know. Well, I think with that, obviously, with the Madonna one, once she'd done it, she'd done it, and that was it. And then obviously, whether she's apologised for that or not, I'm not aware of the story, so I don't know. But That's part of my point, you're not aware of the story. Also, you know, she, you know, she's sixty-three, you know, and she's been in the in the industry for I don't know forty years, possibly, and I'm sure she's advised yeah. by a team of managers and, and legal people. So, so she should know. I would say no better. Course, but yeah. to take her her own private uh, photographer to document uh, the, the trip as well, that shows you either that she believes she's above normalities of behaviour. Or that she's just yeah. tone deaf, and I, I don't know that. But my, my point was that, that, that <laughs> possibly my point was that it was a tentpole story that was everywhere on the twelfth, and then and then it quickly disappeared. Yeah. Whereas the influencers, it, it's been a story for pretty much all of this month. Well, I think that's because it's still everywhere because they're still posting. Yeah. <laughs> that's the problem. I mean, obviously, they're making a, a rod for their own back, aren't they, so to speak, because they're, they're continuously fueling the fire with more and more posts. And my opinion on it is if I was advising some of these guys, I, you know, I'd be saying that I, I don't think it's right that you should be constantly posting on social media. And the, the whole kind of, oh, I'm here for work and I have to be here for this reason or that reason, I, I think is almost a cover story to try and get around some of the things that they're doing. And, you know, if you just want to be honest with people and say, I was allowed to come here, I passed all the tests and I'm here for that reason, then fine. I don't think that there's a, there's a reason to try and make it into something that, it, that it's not. But I do think that it, it can be a bit, a bit tone deaf. But I will add a caveat to this. Instagram and, and Instagram influencers and, and travel influencers as a whole and has always been about escapism. People don't go onto Instagram for real life. They go for that, guess what, that filter. Yeah, the, the aspiration, yeah, the, the Instagram aesthetic as, as we call it. The aspiration, I think. And so I think that there is a bit of a crossover between people being sat here and thinking, oh God, like, you know, it's, it's absolutely terrible. I'm not allowed to leave my house and, and it's, it's, it's rubbish being in lockdown 24 seven. Um, and then looking at, you know, these influences on, on Instagram and, and having a bit of escapism and, you know, they're offering that. And if people are engaging with it, fine. And I do think that if you were to look at the data, it's not like these influencers are posting and people aren't still engaging with it. People are still engaging with it and they're liking it and they're commenting. Well, they're commenting, but I think the point is a lot of the sentiment is negative now towards towards them. That will always be picked up more than the positive, though. And I think that people will look at that and, and, and pick out the negative comments as, a, as, as proof of something that may only be 10%. 
fair comment. I think I would have more time for them if this had happened a year ago. And there's a line by novelist George Santayana, who said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So we know in the in the first wave of lockdown, back in the sands of time, back in March 2020, you had uh, influencers like Ariel Charnas, Instagram influencer with 1.3 million followers. She and her husband and her two kids, and it transpired, and her nanny fled New York for, for the rarefied air of the Hamptons, thus evading uh, shelter in place. Fast forward a few months, we had well-meaning people like the, the actor from The Fast and Furious and, and Wonder Woman, Gal Gardot. Uh, she managed to persuade her showbiz pals to sing John Lennon's Nihilist song, Imagine. And, you know, and, and it was difficult for us to stomach, <laughs> to stomach the lyrics as they sang yeah. about imagining no possessions from their multi-million dollar mansions. You know, and then again, you know, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, one of uh, America's most popular TV personalities, she in turn suffered a, a backlash when she compared being in lockdown to being in prison as she looked wistfully from her armchair <laughs> overlooking her immaculately manicured lawns and mountains. Yeah. So I think well, influencers are, in, are trying to professionalise. Influencer marketing is trying to professionalise. And if you can't learn from the past, mm. then, as you say, you're doomed to repeat it. And I think this could have been avoided. Not, and, you know, one, there's one thing going off and having some fun there's another matter of micro um documenting every move you make and every pina colada you have by the um, pool I, it seems to be something that the influences these days just haven't learned from and uh you know there's obviously a, 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 a what is it a, probably a, a level of opportunism where you know if they've been invited out to dubai or you know they've they've been offered a, a free stay at a hotel to promote it or, or something like that then you know they're going to take it because they think it's it's better than being stuck at home like there is with the rest of us but i think that you know the ones that and people are always looking and we always you know put the the word authenticity out there in terms of how people relate to influencers online and um right now people's feeling of authentic is is living the same life as as everyone else and being in it together and being able to relate to each other and and you know speak to each other and be part of a community and, you know, when you're looking at influencers in Dubai at the moment, you don't feel part of that. You feel very away from that. You feel very, you know, out of the picture. And um, it's not something that you can that you can relate to at all. And um, Yes, well, it loses that authenticity it, and that relatability, yeah. as we sort of covered in terms of what we think of, of influencers, sort of being people like us, but with possibly more opportunities or people that we think we, we could be like them if we weren't, I don't know, working in a factory or working in a shop or, or whatever yeah. it is. Um, One thing that I will say, though, is that having seen all these pictures and seen everything that they're getting up to, um, I do want to go to Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a little bit about how there's a need to professionalise the space, both for marketers and for creators i think you use the word mark opportunism and that suggests that it, it is a knee-jerk suggests that it's a short-term transactional career and you know i, I coined the phrase or the term banjo influences uh, three or four years ago uh, those those people yeah. with a large social media mm -hmm. following that bang another 
influencer job out without really caring about their following or caring about the uh, the brand that they're promoting. That suggests with reality TV stars that they have a, yes. a finite window of celebrity or fame and they will sell anything to anybody for for that period of time. Do you think that's fair, or, or am I lumping everyone in, into one bucket? It's fair in the observation, but I think in terms of who that is pinpointed at, I think we're probably looking at the wrong people. And, and the reason why I say that is they have a finite amount of time to obviously make a success of, of their you know career. Um, the public interest might only last six months, a year, two years, maybe, unless you're a really big star that, that people are really interested in. And, I, you know, I've, I've worked with, with ITV and so on with, with these influencers. And the, the way that the, the Love Island contracts work is that they have to be given talent management to look after them, negotiating their, their brand deals and, and being able to, to make sure that they make the most out of um, the opportunity of being on Love Island and before we can negotiate with them. There are a select group of, of talent management agencies that are on a priority list with ITV as preferred partners. They get the opportunity to pitch to the influencers to, to take them on. And a lot of that is involved in these talent managers putting as much money in front of them as possible to show them that they're going to work hard for them. Uh, but with that, obviously, it's only in the interest of the talent managers to do that when they're taking a 20% cut. First of all, I should say for our listeners that aren't based in the UK, ITV is a free-to-air commercial television station in the United Kingdom. Secondly, I was going to say, Mark, that um, I was going to say they're making these decisions because of lack of professionalism because and they, they should really have a talent manager. You're suggesting that they do have talent management and the management is making them suggesting they make a wrong move just so that they the talent managers can get their, earn their 20%. Quickly. Obviously, with, with what we'd, I'd say was traditional influencers, there's much more of a long-term focus. And so talent managers are aligning that long-term strategy with what an influencer wants to achieve and then working with them to achieve that. I think on the reality TV side of things and the, uh, the celebrity side of things, you as an influencer at that point are only worth as much to your management as as long as you're making them money and you know the managers will keep you for a year two years and you know take their 20 percent and then drop you and then take next year's love islanders and it's just a constant churn in terms of influencers being as part of a management program they'll do it for six to 12 months they'll then be dropped they'll take on next year's love islanders and it's just a constant churn of very what i would probably say is is short-term opportunism it takes advantage i'm not saying that every single manager that's ever managed a love islander is bad because i have some good relationships with some of them and some of them are really really good but there are some out there that don't represent the talent very well they don't represent the industry very well well okay we're scrolling back to dubai then and or reality tv contestants Maybe this is an example of the widening gulf between an influencer as a credible, trustworthy voice of expertise and a celebrity born on reality TV. As an influencer marketing industry, we need a better lexicon to tease out the different elements that sit beneath the umbrella term influencer or creator. And that's not to um, be prejudiced against social media advertisers, but it is to pick Mm -hmm. up that they are possibly different from i think you used the, uh, the phrase long-term or traditional yeah definitely I, i'd agree 100 because i think if you, if you were to speak to the i guess just just your average person on the street and then you were then to speak to your average marketer i think that there still would be a good kind of comparison level between saying the word influencer and getting a 
reality TV star in, in many cases in terms yeah. of what's the first thing that comes to mind when you, when you hear this word. Um, whereas if we were to say content creator, you'd probably get a different answer. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously the, the world of influencer marketing has evolved from being your celebrity ambassadors down to your now nano influencers, which is very kind of close-knit communities around small audience sizes. But the, the term influencer has just become recognized for the industry. But I think that there's so many different subsets of that now that yeah. it's probably not a fair word to describe it anymore. Um, but I think it's just something that if you mentioned it in conversation, people would immediately understand what what it is that you're trying to discuss. And then obviously you would then expand on that to talk about influencers in, in more detail. But I think the holistic influencer view has now been, um, you know, portrayed in the media so much because, you know, the media doesn't really like influencers that much. Um, and they will yeah. try and portray the industry negatively. And unfortunately, um, it's mainly the reality TV stars that are portrayed negatively in the media for their social media exploits in Dubai and, and so on. Um, yeah. And that then becomes representative for the industry. Well, we've been a little bit mean about uh, reality TV stars so far. Um, specifically, we've been honing in on Love Island contestants. But as you articulated in the first first time we spoke in episode four, you're talking about the colossal pulling power of Love Island contestants in shifting product. Do you have any insight or thoughts on mm-hmm. Boohoo making uh, an acquisition bid for Debenhams and ASOS in exclusive talks with Arcadia? So that's Topshop and Topman, etc. What do you see about these online shops buying into bricks and mortar stores? The the Debenhams deal kind of came out of nowhere um, from from Boohoo acquiring that. Um, it wasn't really something that, that I was following and, and, and saw coming. I thought it was much more likely that they would be the ones that were bidding for Arcadia and taking the, the Topshop brands. Um, I thought that was a more placid as an easy fit um, in, in, in terms of what the brands are trying to do. And, you know, I think that with the public, you've got a lot of yeah. what I would say brand power from the, these traditional brands. So your Debenhams and your Topshops and your M&Ss and, and, and people like that. If you ask many people what those brands were, they'd be able to tell you because obviously they're very visual on the high street. There's obviously a lot of brand recognition there for these companies, um, but they just haven't been able to move as fast um, and as efficiently as some of these online retailers. Well, you know, how can the likes of Philip Green be sort of being found asleep at his post? And, and, and I think part of that is because he knew that e-commerce was coming but the pandemic accelerated the speed of that change to such a degree. And I think, you know, it accelerated half a decade in five months, five years of growth in, in five months. So I'm sure, well, I'm not sure, but I would imagine that he knew he was planning to be better uh, on social commerce and e-commerce, oh, yes. but thought he had a couple of years up his sleeve in which to do that and to get out of re- lease agreements and those sorts of things. Obviously, in order to um, push the landlords as much as possible for reduced rates, the only way they tend to be able to do that is to sign longer term leases. I think, unfortunately, a lot of the the very large retail brands have been caught out um, by being on the hook for 10, 12, 15 year leases in an industry that maybe only had three, four, five years left to sort itself out. Um, Unfortunately, the pandemic has massively taken away those four or five years that you mentioned where they thought they had a bit of lead time. 
um, and they've not managed to to change that. And I think there's there's two things that that matter here in 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 why that might have happened. Um, you know, a the the social commerce and the e-commerce brands have managed to grow at such a rapid rate, um, and you know they've they've managed to do that um, at a speed that I don't think many people would have would have predicted. As online shopping habits have changed and people now are shopping more online, um, <clears throat> the experience that these online first brands offer is far superior than the bricks and mortar stores trying to convert their online offering to match it. And I think that's you know massively slowed them down. That if I want to buy something from Boohoo, it's much easier for me to do that online than it is for me to go on Topshop's online website and buy something. The, the checkout process is faster. The the way that I can navigate is easier. Um, the way that I can search and find things is much faster. Um, and I think that user experience has massively outpaced what the traditional brands have, have been able to do. The you know your Boohoo's and your um, ASOS's have, have specialised in doing one thing extremely well. Um, and have managed to, to take a lead on that. And I think that, you know, as consumer habits, habits have changed, people are looking for more, um, I guess, e- experiential um, opportunities with their, with their retail shopping when they're in store. Um, and the brands have been slow to offer that. And it was an interesting, I was having a conversation with a, with a couple of friends uh, last night because we were talking about the Debenhams deal for Boohoo. We were thinking about, yeah. you know, what might be next. Um, and one of my friends mentioned, um, you know, what's going to happen to the likes of Selfridges, for example. It's another huge, um, you know, retailer with large retail space. You know, we were looking at that and, and um, thinking about how their business model might change. And if you, if you think about it, Selfridges specializes in more luxury brands um, and you, more of a luxury shopping experience. And customers want that when they're buying something that's more of a high ticket value item. They, they want an experience around it. They want, you know, the, the, the fancy boxing experience. They want the, the staff to really look after them and take care of them and, you know, pull them from start to finish through that whole kind of brand exercise of how that brand wants you to feel when buying one of their products. You don't get that when you walk into Topshop. You know, that's not an experience that people tend to enjoy. Whereas obviously you're going into a Selfridges and you're, you're, you're buying a luxury item and you've got one sales assistant that's looking after you specifically and, and taking you through that experience journey. Just as social media platforms want you to, to stay on their platform as long as possible, I think Selfridges has an analogue algorithm. By that, I mean, they want you to stay in the store as long as possible, and they've got half a dozen, maybe a dozen mm. bars and restaurants and cafes around there. I think they've got a, a cinema somewhere tucked away. There's a hotel. In terms of your, the customer journey and the experience, yeah. y- yes, you know, but you, you can spend a whole day there is what, what I'm trying to say. Just yeah. as, you know, Instagram or or TikTok will serve up related content that you think you think you'll enjoy yeah. so in an analog world i think selfridges is serving you up that content or that experience that you'll enjoy whether it's the the champagne bar or gordon's gin bar or or a restaurant or, or a roof terrace or, or what, whatever it is as part it's a, so it's a day out it's a destination and this experience as, as well whether you whether you want to have the aspiration of looking at the the ten thousand pound rolexes or whether it is you want to buy yourself a newspaper in in the basement This podcast has been made possible through exclusive sponsorship by Tagger. I particularly like Tagger's discovery tool, 
because it lets you apply hundreds of different filters to their huge database so you can find exactly the influencers you want that perfectly match your campaign. I've seen agencies and brands discover high-value influencers in less than a quarter of an hour. Tagger's affinity tool takes discovery a step further by showing you an influencer's brand affinity. What does this mean? It means you're able to partner with influencers who are most likely to enjoy your brand or product. Tagger focuses on their customer's success. When you sign up to the platform, you're given a dedicated customer success manager. They guide you through everything, from onboarding to training, to just checking in and making sure you're finding success with the platform. When you're running an influencer campaign, sometimes it can be difficult to measure your success. But it's easy to report your campaign data with Tagger. Their modular report builder lets you pull accurate, real-time data directly from social media platforms. You can also choose which metrics matter most to you and your clients, meaning you can customise the data that you show in your report. Something that can be overlooked when you're choosing an influencer marketing platform is the quality of the data. Tagger has direct API access to all major social media platforms. This gives Tagger users 100% accurate, real-time data that's gathered responsibly. You can't plan a good strategy if you're not looking at good quality data. If you're looking to scale your influencer marketing efforts, Tagger is a truly global solution. Its availability in over 10 languages and the ability to make multi-currency payments directly on platform gives brands a huge advantage when running multinational, multilingual influencer campaigns. If you want to see how Tagger can work for you, go to taggermedia.com slash request hyphen demo. Mark, there are a couple of other areas I want to delve into briefly. Again, not a big surprise. I want to go back to uh, Love Island contestants. We now know that the UK government spent £63,000 paying Love Island stars for their part in promoting Test and Trace app to their Instagram followers. Do you think that was money well spent? Yes. Yeah, I do. Sometimes, obviously, you don't really praise the government a lot in terms of their advertising. Um, But I think that this was an opportunity to to really reach, you know, younger audiences that are harder to reach. Um, you know, they're not watching TV. They're, they're watching Netflix. You can't advertise on Netflix. Um, you know, they're not reading uh, newspapers. And so how, how do you reach them? Social media is, is where they are. And, and so social media is where you need to be. And I think if you're looking demographically, influencers that are going to reach the largest amount of UK young people, your reality TV stars are likely going to meet that demographic need. When we look at an influencer's audience makeup after they've been on Love Island, for example, it's usually, you know, 80, 90% UK audience, of which 80, 90% of them are within that 16 to 35 age bracket. They're perfect to meet that demographic that you're, that you're trying to meet. Okay, so they got the demographics, they got the reach. Do you think that the people chosen were the right representatives for the government, though, in, in targeting? You've talked about reach. Is that the best metric, for example? It is difficult. I mean, it, reach was probably a really good metric for that in the short term because what you were trying to do was let people know about something that was essential um, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And I think that you know having that message go out rapidly and reaching not that many people was a a good use of spend in terms of what you would class as brand alignment between the government and these influencers um the government is now telling everybody to stay at home and 
look after themselves and not be spreading the virus. Yet all of these same influencers are in Dubai. <laughs> and so it's hardly yeah, yeah. what you would say is, is sharing the, the, the value of that message anymore. They probably at the time took that job on, you know, thinking that they were doing a, a good service and that it was a message that needed to be sent and, and they would have been happy to do that. Um, but in terms of that long-term alignment, no, because you, you wouldn't be looking to these influencers now um, and saying, are they still abiding by the spirit of that message that they shared on behalf of the government? A lot of them would not be. Some of them are. Some of them have stayed at home. Some of them haven't gone to Dubai. <laughs> true, true that. Now, the story broke uh, that the government was working with influencers and uh, reality TV stars back right at the end of August. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of headlines almost goes without saying that the mainstream media didn't really care for this tactic. Interestingly, acres and acres of digital ink was spent on an outcry in the mainstream media. Uh, Very little um, column inches were were given over to budget being spent in newspapers carrying the same messages or or in magazines or in the radio (laughs) on television. That seemed to be passed passed away. But there was a big downer on TV celebrities and and influencers. And a lot of the headlines said influencers were being paid £10,000 for for carrying these messages. So we now know that 42 social media influencers were paid. And in aggregate, they were paid a sum total of £63,000. Scrolling back, you said you have some insight working with the ITV and uh, these Love Islanders in the past. Do you have a feel for how much they were paid? If you work it out on average, it's about £1,500. 42 creators and 63000 is about 1500 each each. So that probably would be representative of it. And I, I mean, I, I was on LinkedIn the other day and I saw another article about, you know, Dubai and influencers and how much they're getting paid while they're out there. And, you know, the article was saying, you know, this influencer will have been paid up to £7,000 because some software told us on a cost per engagement basis. And it's not. I know that influencer. I know the influencer that was in the article and I know that they charge about 2000 max. Um, in terms of what they would get. And I think obviously it is normally massively overhyped in the media how much these influencers earn, to which then you would then think of more of a negative backlash in terms of, well, is that money well spent from government, you know, paying these influencers, you know, tens of thousands of pounds? And in most cases, it's it's not that much um, per influencer. You're probably looking on average between one to two thousand pounds in terms of what they averagely charge for a cost per post. Real big ones might be three, but you have to be a megastar to be getting the seven to 8,000 that a lot of these articles are talking about. And it paints a different picture, and I don't think it's very fair in some cases. To pick up on paints a different picture, I think there are a number of, and I, I don't know the uh, the people intimately, but uh, of the 42, I think there are a number that waived uh, any financial recompense yeah. and quite a few of them that did take money took a reduced rate. And again, this isn't picked up in yeah. the mainstream media. There's no sort of apology for suggesting that these, these people paid £10,000 each. Uh, and then sort of four months later, we now know that a total of £63,000 was spent. There's no sort of retraction saying, so we got it wrong. And also, nowhere does it say that up until the, the beginning of November, uh, so, uh, i.e., with, with a full, so almost two months to play in 2020, that the government spent a hundred million pounds on COVID nineteen related messages. That's that not point zero six percent went to him. Exactly. Not, yeah, not point zero six three percent. Yeah. And again, that, that's that, yeah. that's not picked up at anywhere in, in the mainstream media. No. 
How has the pandemic, how's the lockdown, uh, how's COVID-19 affected the amount that influencers are charging for their services? It's been a really interesting one. Um, and during the beginning of the pandemic, um, you had a influx of brands asking influencers to be um, considerate, should we say, with their fees. Um, a lot of brands got marketing spend pulled. Um, a lot of brands um, that maybe would be up for trying influencer marketing, obviously, because not, not every brand has, has, has tried it and it is still maybe not relatively new to you and I, but to, to, to many uh, you know brands that maybe have never dipped their toe in this space before, um, a, a new opportunity. And you know when marketing spends are, are being pulled, you don't tend to be experimental with your budget. You tend to go for tried and tested. What we had at the start was a lot of brand pullback. Budgets were getting pulled. Um, influencers were being asked to post for less, or in some cases, they were being asked to post for free. A lot of brands went along the lines of, I'd say, trying to do some public good in terms of trying to share positive messages and sharing, um, you know, opportunities for people to to do things in lockdown. Obviously, we had the baking phenomenon yeah. <laughs> um, and, and things like that. And a lot of influencers were used as part of that message and aligning themselves with brands in a way that wasn't about products. It was about just doing something fun and inviting audiences to, to get involved. I think brands got a little used to it and thought that, you know, oh, great, you know, influencers are, are a lot cheaper than we thought. And <laughs> that's then started to come back. And as with anything, it's supply and demand. What we saw was the biggest change was when the November UK lockdown was brought into play. It was about three and a half weeks before the Black Friday weekend. Uh, and then obviously in the lead up to Christmas as well, that is the busiest trading period of the year, that few weeks up to Black Friday and then a few weeks afterwards up to Christmas uh, and then obviously into January as well with the January sales is where retailers could do 50 to 60% of their annual revenue, I guess, compiled into those three short months. The brands that had a retail offering, so mainly your, your high street fashion brands, they could no longer sell any of their items in store because the, the UK um, government um, advised them to shut. Um, and then obviously what that happened was that they were then relying on the three busiest trading months of the year to be fully online. Obviously, spend went through the roof because brands were absolutely fighting for um, opportunities to work with influencers, to spend online, to spend on Facebook and, and so on. So they needed you know, more content for their Facebook ads. They needed more influencers posting about the brand to talk about their offers. They, I think they got a little bit desperate because they had a very short amount of time to source influencers. I'll give you an example. Um, an influencer that I, that I know quite well was telling me that usually around this time, they might have seven or eight brands pitching them over the Black Friday period to do some promotional posts around that time. This year, there was about 40. <laughs> <laughs> It's a 500% increase, basically. Um, that obviously allows them to, to pick who they, they want to work with. And you want to pick the best brand that aligns with your values. And we talk about influencers turning down jobs for brands that, that don't fit. If you've got five brands that fit, all bidding for your services, that inherently increases the price. And I think some brands got a little bit desperate and 
they weren't even looking to negotiate. They were just looking to, to get influencers on board as fast as possible. So, you know, you might have an influencer that was charging £500 yep. per post and brands were just coming in straight off the bat saying, I'll give you a £1,000 if you post for us. They were just desperate to sign people up. You know, if you're an influencer and you like the brand, you're going to take that deal. But the only problem is, is that that's then going to skew, I guess, your impression as to what you're worth now. Well, that's what I was going to lead on to. So was that a blip? You say that was a Q4 last year. Have the prices returned to a, a previous level or have they still elevated? They are still elevated, but they're not as high as they were at the end of Q4. We've kind of seen a bit of a, a price correction. We've also seen, you know, brands did quite well off the back of working with influencers um, and have now seen that there's an opportunity there that maybe they weren't looking at previously because it wasn't an avenue for them, whereas they've kind of been forced to do it in Q4. Well, they've been forced to do it, but they'd also prove the use case if you're saying that they've demonstrated return on investment. Exactly. And so now you've got brands that are now willing to, to allocate budget to it in you know January. And I guess like we're planning for February, March, April time now. And you know brands are more willing to, to put in that spend. So I think that that's a good use case and it was a good opportunity for influencers to prove their worth. But with that, you've now seen an increase in demand for influencers. And as with anything, you have an increase in demand, you have an increase in prices. <laughs> A lot of my work is obviously done on behalf of the client, not the influencer. And my job is to get the best price for the brands. But I do think that influencer marketing has been undervalued. You will hear, obviously, the stories in the media that, oh, ex-Love Islander charges £10,000 a post, which 99% of the time isn't true. Overall, the market has been undervalued in terms of the content side of things and the assets that you get from working with influencers. And then obviously the added reach and, in many cases, sure, yeah. influence. Um, obviously work for brands if, the, if that brand alignment is right and so uh, I think there's been a good opportunity now for brands that have tested the water to now increase that spend and uh, it's, it's worked out quite nicely for the influencers not necessarily for me because I'm working to the same budgets. I suppose satisfaction comes from the perceived value and now brands are perceiving that value because they're seeing the returns on their investment. We haven't been able to well we struggled I think as a discipline to effectively demonstrate what measurement and evaluation and return on investment looks like but now we are we are in one element of it, and we're talking about the umbrella terms of influencer marketing. In terms of transactional e-commerce or social commerce, then we certainly can see the direct yeah. correlation between uh, influencers' content and an uptick in sales, can't we? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we, we have tools now that will track that through, um, you know, from, from start to finish so that you can you can prove ROI. You know, as brands see more of that, you, you will have more brands coming into this space. And I Obviously, brands want the ROI in terms of sales, but you, you get more than that with influencers. And, and there's many ways to look at what, what did you get for, you, for your spend? And uh, it, it tends to be a lot more than, than sales. That's why influencers are an attractive proposition, because not only is it cost effective, but you, you're also getting opportunities to, to reach new audiences. You're getting opportunities to get fresh content. You're getting opportunities for you to be able to use that content in your wider advertising something that is efficient that can be done quickly um, and that that is cost effective so you know influencers have really proved their value over the pandemic and it's it's worked out well for the industry as a whole rather than just looking at influencers getting bashed for their travel choices <laughs> this is going out at the fag end of january 2021 but it is still january so my final question to you mark is what are you looking forward to how do you think the discipline of influencer marketing is going to evolve in 2021 I think that you're going to have brands working with a lot of smaller content creators on a basis of the quality of content they produce 
and those assets are then going to be repurposed for better integration into paid social. I think we're moving more towards a content economy now with influencers as opposed to what was previously a reach economy in terms of how many people you were reaching. The opportunity now with integrated Instagram ads where you're linking directly into an influencer's Instagram audience and API and being able to to directly target their own audience or lookalike audiences based on who follows them and interests and so on is going to be a much more powerful tool for brands. We're still seeing a content void where, especially your e-commerce brands, they've got hundreds, if not thousands of products on site that they all need multiple high quality images for to be able to test different advertising variations, different copy variations um, across paid social. So brands are going to be looking to fill that gap more than they are looking to find influencers that have a high audience reach. I think that's going to be one of the most interesting ways that brands are going to look at in terms of who they approach and why they approach them. And I think a lot of that reasoning behind the why will be content as opposed to reach or engage. I think that's a really nice place for us to end. Mark Dandy, Managing Director and Founder of Captivate Influence. Remind the listeners, where can people find you on socials? So, I mean, if you want to follow my uh, very boring Instagram, <laughs> it's at Mr. Mark Dandy. <laughs> it's also the same handle on Twitter. If you type in uh, Mark Dandy into LinkedIn, that's probably where I'm, I'm most active. Or you can find us at www.captivateinfluence.com. Thank you for listening to the Influencer Marketing Lab with me, Scott Guthrie. The podcast is sponsored by Tagger. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. For more information, visit InfluencerMarketingLab.com. And if you want to see how Tagger can work for you, go to taggermedia.com slash request hyphen demo.